have your Bibles, we're in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, and I shared on Wednesday night. You know, sadly I grew up, well, thankfully I grew up in church. So let me start there. And I'm so thankful that I grew up in a church where God's word was revered and was honored. And, uh, and every, everything I heard said, you know, you go to the word of God, you go to the word of God. And I did hear that over and over. However, I also grew up in a church that spent more time in the letters of Paul than anywhere else in the Bible. And the letters of Paul are fantastic. But so much of the Older Testament, so much of the Hebrew scriptures, I never heard. You know, with the exception of a Sunday school story. This would be one of those chapters, the opening of 2 Samuel. And, and as a Christian, there are Christians today who would say, what's the relevance of Samuel to my life or Kings or Chronicles? I mean, I know they're Old Testament stories, but the relevance is so profound. We're talking about David. Our Messiah is the son of David. How does it get more relevant than that, than who Jesus is and not only where he came from, but also who he preceded because he's the root of David. And so there is such amazing value here in 2 Samuel. Now, the second half of the first chapter, which is where we are this morning, especially when we're talking about it, as Jake opened up, you know, if you're having a tough morning, if you're having a great morning, if it's sorrowful, if it's joyful. Well, this is, this is not a place that you would think you would go where, if you were looking for joy because it is a lament. It is a sorrowful section of scripture. It's one, again, that I hadn't heard when I was growing up. It's one that I think people would probably move on by unless they're just in a really depressed state and they wanna get a little more depressed, you know? Sometimes we get that way. I'm bummed out, leave me alone, I wanna wallow. Just let me do that. That's not what this is about, but it is of great value to us. Listen to it. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17, then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Yashar. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the, have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Oh, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? Father, we read this lament this morning and ask for your insight 
and pray as we study through these verses and, and recognize and even learn to a degree this song that we would understand why it's so important, that we would see not only its significance, but its relevance. Father, I just pray that this would be implanted, your word implanted in us this morning. Because Father, it is your word that changes us. It is your word that, that grows like the seed in the soil and pushes up through the dry ground and makes its way into the light and brings that satisfaction and joy and increase of faith in our lives. And so I ask, Lord Jesus, simply that your spirit would cultivate your word in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, I don't normally stand, by the way, during first service, I'm usually still waking up, and then I stand during second service, so it keeps me awake, but I'm good this morning. So I'm just gonna be standing up here, and I wanna share this lament with you and think it through together and process it this morning, and it truly is from a place of joy, though it is a lament, a lament. How can you sing a lament with joy? Well, let's figure that out, but... I wanna start with this. It was first defined, there's a phrase, first defined in the Oxford English Dictionary, 1898 to 1905. This is the first time we see this actually in print. But it reached the heights of popular culture status in America of the 1950s, thanks to Charles M. Schultz. On the morning of June 6, 1952, it appeared in comic print as Charlie Brown spoke that iconic idiom, you know it, say it with me now, good grief. <laughs> I still use this sometimes, Chris can attest to that. Good grief. And it's a phrase we don't use as much anymore, but it was used a lot in the 50s and 60s and, and even into the 70s, this, this phrase. And, and obviously it's, it's that expression of frustration or dismay. Lucy says, and this is the comic strip, would you like to have a great big bug, Charlie Brown? And he's sitting there reading, a little distracted, and he says, I guess it would be all right. And she tosses a bug on him, and he shouts, yeah! And he says, good grief, Lucy. I thought you said hug. <laughs> like a great big hug, Charlie Brown. She throws a bug. Good grief. Good grief, that expression of dismay but I was thinking about it, and especially in the context of what we're studying, reading this morning, is grief ever good? Is it ever really good? Now, by using good grief as the title for this teaching, understand I don't mean to trivialize grief any more than we should ever trivialize good. Good in its deepest, purest meaning. And so I mean this morning that what we're talking about is a profoundly good treatment of sorrow, that there is a good grief, that there is a grieving that in the Lord is good and is important and is significant and is valuable. Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse two says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting because that's the end of every man. And the living Take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Oh yes, there is a good 
grief. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, Paul writes, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, that you were made sorrowful to repentance. A sorrow that brings repentance. He says, you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. That's bad grief. But there is a good grief. There is a sorrow that works in us faith, that brings about in us repentance, and that directs us to the Lord and to his strength. So in the first half of 2 Samuel chapter 1, we see upon learning of the death of Saul and Jonathan and, and having proof of their death as this Amalekite shows up and he's got the bracelet and he's even got the crown of Saul and says they're dead on Mount Gilboa. Israel has fallen. It's a complete routing. We see David and his men immediately respond. We talked about this last week. They tore their clothes. They wailed and they wept bitterly all the way into the evening. They even stopped mid-conversation with this skeevy little guy to weep and to mourn and to wail in this cathartic outburst of sorrow. Just, uh, they just fell into it and it overtook the day. This is different that was a painful, sorrowful, heavy grief that was just, it just came gushing out. This is now a lament. David now, after all the events of the day, sits down and writes out a song of sorrow. It is measured, it is considered, it is processed as he's putting it on the page. Kyle and Delich say it is one of the finest odes of the Older Testament full of lofty sentiment and springing from deep and sanctified emotion in which without the slightest allusion to his own relation to the fallen king, David celebrates without envy the bravery and virtues of Saul and his son Jonathan and bitterly laments their loss. This is a song that is so important to David, he commands that it be taught to all the sons of Judah. This isn't a one-off for an outburst of sorrow moment. This is a song that all the people of Judah were to learn. They were to memorize and to be able to sing. This was one that was given to them. And they even kept record of it, verse 18 tells us, in the book of Yashar. The book of Yahoo? No, the book of Yashar now, this is an extra-biblical text that we believe was a book of ballads and poetry and prose, and it included other verses. In fact, Joshua chapter 10, verses 2 and 3 tells us that that's listed, that's kept in the book of Yashar. The uh, Septuagint also tells us 1 Samuel 24, verses 6, and 1 Samuel 26, verse 9 is also in the book of Yashar. What is the book of Yashar? Where is it? We don't know. It's been lost into history. We only know of it because the Bible talks about it, describes it, and mentions it. And there were plenty of historical or extra-biblical books put together then, as there are now. If you've ever read a, a devotional book or a support book to the Scripture, nothing wrong with that. That's great. It's not inspired in the way Scripture is. How can you say the books of Max Lucado are not inspired? Well, they're good. But there's a difference between the inspiration of Scripture 
and the inspiration of these other books. Doesn't mean they're lying or not true or not valuable or not helpful. It just means they're not inspired as the word of God is inspired. And this is a divinely inspired song written down in Kephras, not just in the book of Yashar, but in the book of the word of God. And so valuable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction. It is the prophetic word made more sure. This word is given to us because it doesn't come back to God empty. And so this is inspired, even as David is writing, by the Spirit of God. A song inspired by God to be taught and sung and remembered. So we better learn it. Verse 17 again begins that David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son, I'm gonna give you some points to jot down. These points are never inspired. <laughs> They're just to, to help us move through the passage. So if you miss one, that's okay. But this is a thoughtful lament. That's point number one. A thoughtful lament. It is considered, it's thoughtful. We need to actually move thoughtfully through it. We need to be cautious here because David's not a self-help guru. That's not the point of either this song or of the Psalms that he would later write. He is not offering us a seminar on how to deal with grief in the moment. And again, not to belittle grief or sorrow or handling loss, but this is different. It tells us in verse 17 that he chanted with this lament. In the Hebrew, it's yechonin ha-kinah. Konin and kinah are actually the same word. It's just written differently, phrased differently. One is a verb, one is a noun. It's a verb saying you need to act on the noun. Literally, it would be David chanted a chant or David lamented a lament. And it's written this way to say this is, he is acting on the noun. He is acting on the lament. He is actually lamenting the lament that he is writing down here. So again, this is different than the spontaneous sorrow that we saw in the first half of the chapter that just erupted from David and his men. This is meaningful, it is measured, it is truly a good grief that bears repeating. And in verse 18 it says, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah, as we see, not even the song of the bow. Our, our Bibles, your Bible probably says the song of the bow. The song of it's not there. It's just he, he said to teach the sons of Judah the bow. That's the name of this. The bow, behold, it's written in the book of Yeshar. Teach them this thoughtful lament. Because emotional outbursts may be cathartic, but they don't cure. They, they may in the moment allow you to vent feelings and emotion and, and hurt and sorrow, but they don't mend a broken heart. Thoughtful lamentations have a way of doing that, that emotional outbursts do not. Lamentations such as this one have a way of, of ministering healing to the broken or sorrowful heart. Have you ever had that happen? Had a song come on the radio just when you were really struggling with someone or something, a song of faith, a song of encouragement, and that song actually begins to minister to you to change your perspective or your outlook. I'm not talking about, you know, Ed Sheeran's charm or Taylor Swift's breakups. I'm talking about the way music, especially set to inspire words or even better scripture, how it has a way of literally ministering 
It opens our spirits. Now, music itself, we've talked about before, music itself is, is morally neutral. Okay, there's not good music and evil music. There is just music. But music is, it, it's a way that tends to open our spirits to then whatever the lyrics have to say. Music can stir us, uh, stir us up emotionally, but it's neither good nor bad. It is simply spiritually powerful, which is why whatever is coming in with the music is so significant, why it matters so much. Music can be used for light or for darkness. It can be like a salve that carries either medicine or poison. But once these words of lament, spiritually inspired, enter into the scene, this is a ministering song. And it's written that way, with that intention. It blends good into the sorrow. Whereas there are songs out there that blend evil into the musical mix, and that gets in a head, it gets in a heart. But with this one, we have a lot of song templates like this. It, it is a template for lament, a beautiful song. We have many that are in the Bible that we can pray or we can sing for the good in the grief. And perhaps you've done that as well. Go to the Psalms. Go to the Psalms when you're sorrowful. Sing or read through or pray through the fourth or fifth or 13th or 16th Psalm or the 22nd Psalm or the 23rd Psalm, that one we often go to. Psalm 46. Any number of the Psalms you can go to and be ministered to. Songs of lament that David himself wrote or others wrote. Or how about this song of lament? I'm gonna just pull a little section out of the middle of an entire lament. You remember, it's called the book of Lamentations. The Kinah, the Lamentations of Jeremiah. And chapter three, verse 19, just listen to this. Jeremiah, we think writing from the position of the Mount of Olives, watching Jerusalem burn to the ground. Writes, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. God saw fit to have this in the scriptures. God preserved the lamentation of Jeremiah. Why? Because it ministers. My soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he, that is the Lord, has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach, for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. It's a lament, but a lament unto faith. It's potent and powerful. And that's, of course, the lament that David writes. Godly laments such as these are written for three reasons. Three reasons. Number one, to remember loss. David is going to be saying, don't forget this. Don't forget what happened on Mount Gilboa. Don't forget this great loss. Laments cause us to remember the loss 
that was had, and we think, I don't want to remember. I don't want to feel that. David says, you need to. Jeremiah says, don't forget this. And so laments are written that we might remember loss and release the grief connected to that loss. Remember the loss, releasing the grief, ultimately restoring hope. These are ministering songs. So again, back in 2 Samuel chapter one, David calls this thoughtful lament, he calls it the bow, the cassette. Not cassette like, you know, we used to make mixtapes for each other back in the 80s. This is a cassette in the Hebrew, and it literally refers to the archer's bow. Teach them the song of the bow, he says. What bow? What bow is he talking about? Well, obviously in the song itself, it's the bow of Jonathan or the bow of war. Down there in verse 22, says the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. It's the song of the bow. So in its immediate application, we know this is the bow of war, but there's another bow I think he's talking about, and it's the bow of covenant. Covenant. For David to say, teach them the song of the bow, you've gotta get into David's mind a little bit. What might he be thinking? 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse three, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. The bow to David would be symbolic, remembering the covenant that Jonathan made with him, that deep friendship bound by covenant. Jonathan's gifts to David that expressed both love and allegiance and loyalty, by the way, in a way that was righteous and good and godly and, and, and unconditional. Teach them the bow. God gave us a bow, didn't he? Long ago, Genesis chapter nine, verse 13, I set my bow, my cassette, in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. God has kept faith with that covenant now for some 5,000 years. Every time we see a rainbow in the heavens, the Lord is reminding us, even if he is himself reminded of the covenant promise that he made never to again destroy the world with a flood. And he hasn't, has he? He has kept that promise, that covenant, by the rainbow we see in the heavens, the bow that he sets there, now some would say, duh, that's a religious explanation for water droplets that are refracting with the sun. That's all that's going on there. Who created the sun? Who created water in such a way that it would refract with the light of the sun and cause the bow in the heavens? God did that. God did that. And so even to this day, the rainbow belongs to the Lord. But all the enemy wants to do is twist it, right? Don't worry, I'm not gonna go off in, in, in this direction. I, I've got more humility than that. <laughs> see, in, in contrast to pride, see what I just did there? No, what, what I'm gonna do here is just point out that what the enemy does is he takes bows of covenant and he twists them. 
He has twisted the beauty of the rainbow in the heavens to mean something that is not what it meant and not what it means, not to the Lord. He alters it. He, he makes it a false, twisted, lying bow. Revelation chapter six, verse two, he did it again, or it, it will happen again. The enemy is going to twist the bow. I looked, John writes, behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer, and that's not a sign of covenant. It's a sign of conquering. It's a sign of antichrist. Well, how do you know that? Just wait, because we're gonna do Revelation right after we finish 2 Samuel. We'll talk about why and what that means, but I'll give you this much. You know that Revelation chapter six, verse two, that this guy sitting on a white horse with a bow is the antichrist because he's followed by riders of war, famine, and death. Saddled up and riding with him, that's his posse. So we know right there, it's a twisted bow. And the enemy loves to twist the bow. David's lament, David's song of the bow, takes the beauty of covenant. It recalls the covenant bow with Jonathan and even the bow of Jonathan in war. It is a sorrow that restores the hope of the kingdom because Jonathan gave David that bow in the first place to acknowledge that you will be king. Song of the Bow has kingdom underpinnings to it, which again restores hope even in sorrow. So let's look at it. Verse 19, your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Your beauty, the word beauty is sabi, and it means honor. It means your ornamentation of splendor. And here he is referring to the anointed king. Your beauty has fallen, O Israel. He's talking about Saul. Now, if I had written this, I might have said, that jerk has fallen, O Israel. David's a better songwriter than I am. Your beauty has fallen, he says of the anointed king. And he says, he says the mighty. How have the mighty fallen? That word mighty, sometimes even used of the Lord, it's gibor, giborim here. It's the plural form of mighty, so it's talking about your valiant warriors. Originally and more personally, it would refer to Saul and Jonathan. How have the mighty fallen? These two, these giborim of Israel. But it also refers to all of Israel's soldiers fallen on Mount Gilboa. The whole army went down. Some fled for their lives. It was a massive slaughter by the Philistines, all the mighty ones of Israel. And this brings us to a second point in this lament, and it is a thread of mortality. A thread of mortality. A thoughtful lament that brings us to a thread of mortality. David will say it three times. How have the mighty fallen in verse 19? Again, how have the mighty fallen in verse 25? How have the mighty fallen in verse 27? It becomes kind of the theme of this song, this return uh, refrain that he sings out. How have the mighty fallen? It's a thread of mortality. It reminds us right through the song that for all of our supposed mortal might, the mighty will fall. And we are fallen and frail. All of us together. You know, it's funny because the contrast in my house between me and my son, Chris, is pretty extreme. Chris is a soccer player. Chris is, you know, 16 muscular, 
as a 16, I mean, he's a stick, but he's muscular as a 16-year-old. He points that out to me often. You know, we have conversations because I remember the glory days when I was 16 and I could dunk. <laughs> I wouldn't even try. I mean, to, to, to even try to jump, I would hurt myself today. And we have these funny conversations back and forth about, Dad, you're out of shape. I could outrun you anywhere. And I'm like, oh, Chris. <laughs> and in my mind, I think, just wait, son. Just wait till you're 50-something with a pot belly and slow legs and... And your son's telling him how awesome he is. <laughs> how have the mighty fallen? <laughs> we are mortal and we are frail, brothers and sisters. That's the way of the world. And I was talking to my mother-in-law, to Sharon, just a couple days ago, and she's like, why does it have to be this way? And I'm like, I know, right? What's amazing is I'm actually old enough to relate a little bit to her aches and pains. How's that happen? It's called life, and it is where every single one of us are going from youngest to oldest, how the mighty have fallen. And even if you had a time in your life, and maybe if it is this time in your life where you feel invincible and mighty and strong, the mighty will fall. That is the thread of mortality. And it's not just in this lament, it's throughout the scriptures. Good news. You're gonna waste away and die. Your body is not up to the harsh treatment of this world. Just the way it is. Welcome to it. I'd love to stop right there and just send you home. We're going to keep going. Because you might say, well, wait a minute. How is that good grief? That just sounds like grief, bad grief. Where's the hope in that? Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then down in verse six, a voice says, call out. And he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Words of comfort in the thread of mortality. Yes, all people are like grass. Yes, all people will have their moment of glory and they will fade like the flowers of the field and be blown away by the mortality of this world. But there is hope in the thread of mortality because our hope is not in mortal strength. It's in God whose word stands forever. Which is why the whole section in Isaiah begins, comfort my people. Comfort my people, your grass. But God stands. Your flower but the word is eternal. We are fallen and frail, but our hope is not in our physical might. How have the mighty fallen? Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is in him and his eternality, his promises. Now again, the older we get, the more we become aware of this thread of mortality in our lives. That thread seems to get thicker and thicker, right? Aches, pains, limitations, good grief. But we're like that grass. Listen to this, verse nine. 
continues on in Isaiah 40, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Here's your God. This is a prophetic word of all of the, of the difficulty and hardship and, and waste laid upon Israel over the centuries. There is a moment coming where Zion is called, where Jerusalem is told, here is your God. Here is the hope through all of that sorrow and difficulty and we could say lamentation. Behold, the Lord God will come with his might, his gibor. With his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Jesus quotes that exact thing right out of Revelation 22. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. Why must it be this way? Our physical bodies, our, our aging and our aches and pains and all of that that comes with it, this mortal thread, because it teaches us that our comfort is in the Lord, that we are being led by a good shepherd. My strength and my hope is not this body is going to last. I, I got a great little uh, a text from Steve Berenson. Just, was it just last week? It was in the last week or, or two. I don't know, I'm getting old. I'm not sure about time anymore. But, but saying it's been a year to the day since, since you were in the hospital, is that right? Or two years? Year and a half. See? Since he was in the hospital, and many of you remember this, that he was not supposed to leave the hospital. It was supposed to be done. He's got a clean bill of health. Doctor says the heart looks great. Come back in a year. So you have a year to worry and lament until that next appointment. <laughs> if your hope is in the physical Man, right? But Steve's hope is not in the physical man. It is in the Lord who literally breathed into him new life. As he does with us, and you know what? Here's the thing. Steve, I'm so glad you're here, but if you weren't, we would all know where you were, right? Because our hope is not here. Our hope is not in this. Our hope is in the Lord. And that's the comfort in the thread of mortality wherever you are and however difficult life may be in this moment. However much you may feel physically like I don't have time. Your hope is in the Lord. Your comfort is in your God. And the course of our ever weakening lives, I believe God set intentionally to bring us to the good shepherd. And the more we recognize we are not eternal, at least in this flesh, we need a shepherd. And it leads us right into the hands of God. It's a thoughtful lament with a thread of mortality. And thirdly, there is a thread of contempt. A threat of contempt. Verse 20, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not on the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. Long after the Philistine nation ceased to exist, this remained a proverb in Israel, tell it not in Gath. They would repeat this. So this song of lament actually got into the thinking of the Israelites all the way, much later, about 400 BC, in the book of Micah, chapter one, verse nine, for her, her wound is incurable, it has come to Judah, it has reached the gate of my people, even Jerusalem, Tell it not in Gath. 
Tell it not in Gath. Micah's writing and the Philistines don't even exist. What do you mean, tell it not in Gath? The idea here is don't sing this in Gath. Don't review this lament or share this lament in Ashkelon, Philistine cities. Why? They will turn it into a vile celebration. They will use it wrongly. Don't fuel the fire of the enemy or give them cause to mock or to scorn. That is such a valuable principle, that threat of contempt. Listen to me. This happens way too much. It's got to stop. It is one thing to pray over or to repent of the failures of the church in the church. That is right and good. In fact, Peter said it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, right? So disciple to disciple, believer to believer, Christian to Christian, we should be judging our motives and our thoughts and our behavior and judging to draw each other by restoration to the Lord. Yes, that's good in the cities of Judah, but tell it not in Gath. Don't share these things in Ashkelon. All it does is breed contempt. We bring our stuff to each other and before the Lord. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, 1 Peter 4, 17. And if with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, it's one thing to bring it to a brother or sister. It's another thing to deal with church business in and among church people. It's another thing to broadcast the judgment among those who don't obey the gospel. Here in the lament, we're taught, told not to do that. To, to bring judgment to the unbelievers of Gath who will just use it for ridicule. Now, I get a little fired up about this because I wonder how the Lord feels when church failures go out on full display in social media. And Christians are doing it all the time. And it's gotta stop. When Christians attack Christians in the public forum, it's not okay. All it does is make the public forum laugh at Christians. That's not good. There are websites, there are a couple, I'm not even gonna name them because they just make me mad. And they exist to dig up dirt on pastors and fallen ministries. That's why they're there. Always going after, well, this happened here, or this guy did that, or this guy did this, and bringing up dirt. One website recently brought up a dirt, dirt on a pastor that I deeply respect and have for a long time of something that happened back in the 80s. Why? And then you look at the, at the, the subheading of this particular website that, again, really ticks Pastor Rick off. That says, reporting the truth, restoring the church. No, they're not. They're just tearing down the church. They're just hurting people. Now, I'm not saying that pastors should get away with anything. No. If a pastor sins or falls, he needs to be called on it. And like anybody else, the process of repentance and restoration needs to get underway. So I'm not just standing up and saying pastors should be left alone. No, we shouldn't. We should be dealt with. And a pastor who sins before his fellowship should be dealt with in the church and with other believers, and with the intention, ultimately, of being restored like anybody else. But when you have a website out there and it just sends all this stuff out, and it becomes a venting ground for people who have ever been hurt by another person in another church somewhere, that is wrong. It tears down the church, it does not build up the church. And we're called to build up the church. 
Not to rip on each other. Man, I'll tell you what, if you go to work and some Christian brother or sister has hurt you and you're talking to non-believers about that jerk at church, you are tearing down the body of Christ. Tell it not in Gath. Don't share this in Ashkelon. Well, okay, so it fuels the fires of the enemy. So what? So it's gonna cause the non-believer to take a step further away from the church and from Jesus and from potential salvation. You see what I'm saying? It's not just about us. And to tell these things in Gath, it does the opposite of what Jesus said to do. What did he say to do? Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go to him and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Praise the Lord. If he does not listen, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, Every fact may be confirmed. So, so now you're gathering in a small group to bring this sin to light. Well, why? Why would you do that? Because judgment needs to begin in the household of God. We need to love each other enough to call each other on our stuff so that we can be restored. Jesus then says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the world. No. He says, tell it to the church. Then, then you bring church leadership You bring other church people into it, not for the purpose of causing dissension in the ranks, but for the purpose of restoring the brother who has sinned. That's gotta be first and foremost on our minds. Galatians 6, verse one, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, which means you didn't repent, you didn't confess, you just got stuck. Everybody found out. Even if that happens, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. That's what confession's supposed to be about, but it's also what revelation is about. We find out that Jake is off doing this horrible sin. I don't stand up here and just tell you all about, ooh, sorry, Jake, I just did. I'm giving an example that if we have a brother who sins, the idea is not, oh, okay, now we can tell everyone. The idea is how can we restore our brother What needs to happen to show this fault to him so he can recognize it and confess and repent and be restored to the Lord so this thing isn't hanging on to him? You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Where does that happen? In the church. Not in the public forum. Tell it not in Gath. If you know a fallen brother or sister or church fellowship in disarray, do not tell it at gath.com. You know, avoid the Streets of Ashkelon podcast. That is not where this belongs. It only increases contempt and derision for the Lord's bride. Cheryl and I were about to be married. If if we had an argument, we never did. But if we had had an argument... (laughs) I wouldn't be going around to my friends telling them how awful she was on my wedding day. You know, as she's dressed in white, about ready to come down the aisle, I wouldn't be telling people outside of this relationship. Yeah, I know the dress is white, but it's really stained. I mean, it's soiled and messy. No, we seek for resolution and restoration in the church. And we don't bandy that stuff outside on the streets of the Philistines. 
Now, now again, we don't ignore, we don't hide from our sins, we confess them, but we do so among those who understand grace so that grace can be shared. Well, verse 21. O mountains of Gilboa, he continues, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Mount Gilboa still stands in Israel today. It's one of the mounts that surrounds the Jezreel Valley. We can see it from several different locations. On the first day of our tour, we see Mount Gilboa. That's where Saul and Jonathan died. But it's more than where Saul and Jonathan died. Mount Gilboa became a theater of shame. That's number four, a theater of shame. David curses Mount Gilboa here. He curses the mount, literally saying, let not do or reign beyond you. Let this place become a complete curse that, that the fields will not offer up any kind of produce. Let it be an ugly, bald mountain. Why, David? Because the shields of Israel were strewn about that mountain, lying upon the corpses that they did not protect that Israel fell on Mount Gilboa, and it becomes, this is important, don't miss this, it becomes a theater of shame. Gilboa, a national disgrace for Israel. Gilboa, standing there somewhat to the middle, it's to the north of Jerusalem, but still, it's, it's central in the land of Israel, and it is a central disgrace, a national disgrace, and David says, sons of Judah, I want you to sing that in the song. Remember Gilboa. Why? It's ancient Israel's Alamo. It's similar to modern Israel's Masada. Don't forget this. Don't forget this. In AD 73, the Roman army marched out of Jerusalem, having raised it to the ground. They march to the south toward the Dead Sea, and they come upon a mountain stronghold, having been built up by King Herod himself. King Herod wrote it as his own escape, or, or built it as his own escape. Massive palace there, food stores that would last years. And a group of about 970 or so, 967 Jewish people fled Jerusalem, went up onto Masada and camped out there, hid out there. And Rome besieged it, AD 73. And they knew that they weren't gonna be able to get in there, so Rome began to build a siege ramp, a siege ramp on, on the side of, of Masada, coming up to Masada. Well, the people up on Masada thought this was a lot of fun, and they started throwing stones on the Romans building the ramp. So the Romans said, okay, you're gonna do that? No problem, we will use your own people to build the ramp. And they brought Jewish slaves to build this ramp. And they got the ramp all the way up to the top where finally the people in Masada said, there is no hope. The leaders gathered all of the men in the synagogue there in Masada. They passed out little pieces of paper with, with, with like, like did a lottery basically. They came down to one man. They dismissed the group and all the men went back to their homes around within Masada. And first they took a knife to their children and then to their wives. And then they all came back to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, the man who had drawn the lot, well, he killed all the rest so that none of them would die by murder. There would just be one. It was a mass suicide, 960 people when Rome broke through onto Masada, 
they discovered this morbid silence and they began to discover bodies of men grasping their wives and their children dead in these homes. 960 people. There were uh, seven who got out, two women and five kids who, who hid out. And that's how we know the story because they were hiding in the cellars and the Romans found them and they told what had happened up on Masada. Now I tell you that tragic story, yeah, it's 2,000 years ago, AD 73, why is that important? To this day, uh, IDF recruits will early in the morning hours march up the switchbacks up the side of Masada, up to the very top, getting there just as the sun is coming up and illuminating the Israeli flag on the top of Masada, and they will all together shout loudly, never again shall Masada fall. Remember Masada. Remember the Alamo. <laughs> Remember Gilboa, the theater of shame. That's David's intent for this verse that they would remember the theater of shame, not remember beautiful Mount Gilboa there in the Jezreel Valley or above it. No, remember the fall of Gilboa. And we would say today, our application, remember another mountain. Remember Golgotha. Remember Golgotha. Don't forget Golgotha. Remember Golgotha. Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I have a boast. My boast is the cross. In fact, my boast is in his shame, in his disgrace. The cross, please hear me on this, the cross is the theater of shame. Golgotha is the most shameful place in history on the planet. Golgotha is our boast. Our boast is the very shame and disgrace of Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Understand, the empty tomb is our victory, but the cross at Golgotha, that's the place sin and shame go to die. The theater of shame and David sings, let's remember this. Now, now, what does he mean at the end of verse 21? He says, the, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. What does that mean? It means not conditioned properly. Not conditioned properly. It, shield, the, the word shield here is magen. Have you heard of the magen David? That is the shield of David. That's the, if you look on the Israeli flag, that's, that, that's what they call the Star of David, but they don't call it the Star of David. They call it the Shield of David, the Magen David. In ancient Israel, shields, to understand the shields were made of leather. They, they didn't have the, the iron and the steel, at least for weaponry. And so the shields were made of leather. It'd be a thick leather. It would be stretched over frames and the leather shields had to be rubbed down with oil to maintain their strength and their integrity. And so Saul's shield here is portrayed as stretched and dry and cracked and split and literally, symbolically, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil also implies his anointing is no more. The shield is broken. The anointing is no more. We have a shield, right? 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, in addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you would be, will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That is our shield. And if you want a faith that remains strong, that wears well to deflect attack, you need to continually cleanse and condition the shield of faith with the Holy Spirit, the oil of the Spirit. Oh, Lord, increase my faith, you can pray simply. Spirit of the living God, keep my faith strong and flexible and able to deflect the enemy's attack. See, Titus chapter three, verse five, Paul says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Man, it's that conditioning of oil whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Number five, it's a theme of sacrifice. A theme of sacrifice, blood and fat. But those two words together, when you see blood and fat in the Hebrew scriptures, they call to mind, they call to mind bulls and rams and lambs offered in sacrifice on the altar. The blood and the fat. Leviticus 17, 6. The priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting and offer up the fat in smoke as a soothing aroma to the Lord. So David is here now describing on Mount Gilboa in that theater of shame, he is describing a theme of sacrifice that Saul and Jonathan sacrificed themselves, that the dead Israelites sacrificed themselves on behalf of the people. The bow of Jonathan, the sword of Saul, did not fail. Oh, they were dead. The shield broken, the, the, the sword snapped. They were dead, but their lives are given sacrificially, even as Israel, Israel's gonna rise greater than it ever was under the rule of David. So David sees Saul and Jonathan as sacrifices given for the greater good of Israel. Sacrifices made to the Lord are never in vain. And sometimes we think they are. Sometimes you give up something in your life. Sometimes you go a direction to serve the Lord or to help your brothers and sisters or to be of some kind of value to God and you pour yourself into it and at the end of the day, you're like, nothing good came of it. What do I have to show for it? Sacrifice was a waste. No, sacrifices made in the name of Jesus are never in vain. They may go unnoticed. People may not be aware of what you have done for the Lord. There may be no applause. And in fact, the moment of sacrifice is rarely publicized, but the value is always eternal in the name of the Lord. What you give up, what you're willing to do in the name of the Lord for Jesus' sake, has great eternal value. Romans 12, verse one, that's why Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I'll put it to you this way. Once you get saved, your life is a sacrifice. Once you accept the sacrifice of Jesus that, that offers you eternal life, 
your life then becomes sacrificial. That's the whole point of continuing to live after we have come to Jesus. I'm not talking about self-inflicted hardship. I've told you before, it is a wrong mentality to think the only way I can know I'm serving God is if it's hard, if it's woeful, if I'm bummed, then I know I'm serving the Lord. Come on, serving the Lord is the most wonderful thing you can do with your life, but it also calls for sacrifice. It also means you're not gonna get what you think you want. It means you're gonna have to give up that which you thought was so important before Jesus. It's not self-inflicted hardship or victimization. It's simply asking, what are we here for? This is Cheryl's question to me. I've told you before, I hate hearing it. Whenever she comes up with some great idea of how we can serve the Lord more, and I say no, and she says, well, what are we here for? Sacrifice. The theme of sacrifice is the theme of the follower's life. We're not here to get, we're here to give up because we've already gotten salvation. We've already got eternity. We've got the kingdom. What else do you want? We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What else do you want? We have it all. And now I'm giving. And now it's sacrifice. And remember, even in the seemingly lost battles of the spiritual life where you put yourself out there and it seems like an utter failure, remember this, the sword does not return empty. Isn't that what he says? Sword of Saul did not return empty. I love the wording. So will my word be, Isaiah 55, 11, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return empty. Same phrase. And what is the sword but the word of God? And the sword does not return empty. The word of God is not imprisoned. Right, Mike? The word of God is not imprisoned, which is why we speak the word of Jesus. It's why there's so many verses. That's not to impress anybody. You know, it's because the word always fills and brings back to the Lord something full, even if we don't see it, even if we're not aware of it. Again, 2 Timothy 2.9, I love Paul's words, the word of God is not imprisoned. COVID's apparently on the rise. Get out your mask. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. If you need to, that's fine, that's you, whatever, but, but that fear is being generated again. In the news, Coming back around, some are saying, are we gonna have to go into another quarantine? You know what? The word of God is not in prison. That's my concern. You can't quarantine God's word. I love that during that whole lockdown season that that was so frustrating and so difficult, I love how many churches jumped online because what other choice did we have? And now, guess what? The word of God's all over the place. It has spread more than ever before the lockdowns of 2020. Praise the Lord. I mean, are you saying you're thankful for COVID? I'm saying I'm thankful that every time the enemy tries to shut down the word of God, it explodes. So it's everywhere now, and it just keeps going out, and if you're listening to this online, hey, welcome. But yes, the word of God is not in prison. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Oh, listen to David's word. He says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant. Was Saul pleasant to David? Did, 
did, did he not read 1 Samuel like we did? Did he not live that entire horrible time being chased and hunted and haunted by, by Saul? And yet now he says, beloved and pleasant. That word pleasant is ne'emim, and it literally means the good ones. David, in giving this elegy, he says, Saul was one of the good ones. Um, I can see one of his guys going, David, no, no. Saul was not one of the good ones. David's gracious to a fault here. I mean, he is so magnanimous to call Saul one of the good ones. Why would he say that? Two reasons. Number one, his position as the anointed king, which David, as we've recently talked about, David saw that as incredibly valuable. He was the anointed of God, therefore he's one of the good ones, no matter what he's done to me. But a second reason is not just his position, it's his association with Jonathan, who was the most dear person in David's life. He's Jonathan's dad, and no matter how he's treated me, Jonathan's here because of Saul. My best friend exists because of his dad. Literally, this reads also, in life and death, they were not parted. Saul and Jonathan, beloved, they were the good ones. And in life and death, they were not parted. So number six, if you're still following along, this is a thick and thin relationship. A thick and thin relationship. There on Mount Gilboa, the body of Jonathan is not far from the body of Saul. They were not parted even in death. And who made sure of that? Jonathan did. Jonathan did. Remember that Saul wanted to kill his son Jonathan at one point? If you go back, you can read it in 1 Samuel 14. Saul is angry because Jonathan had some honey. I'd be in all kinds of trouble. He's angry with his son Jonathan for violating his call that all Israel not eat until the battle was over and everybody's fainting and falling and they're tired and exhausted and Jonathan grabs some honey and he's good to go. So Saul says, I want to take him out. Whoever did this needs to be killed. And the lot falls on Jonathan, and when he confronts him on it, Jonathan says, I must die. And Saul said, yeah, you must. And if the people of Israel hadn't stepped in, Saul would have seen to the death of his own son, Jonathan. And yet here they are, living, fighting, and dying together. Why? Because Jonathan was faithful. Though his own father wanted to take him out, He's faithful in the thick of the battle. Wait a minute, that sounds like, sounds like Jesus. In spite of what I've done, he is faithful in the thick of the battle. He is faithful in life. He is faithful even to and through death. And when my faith is growing thin, he's thick. He's there. He has not forgotten me. I, I saw this uh, interview I'll admit to you on Instagram, I, I thought it was really cool. Kelsey Grammer. If you've seen the movie Jesus Revolution, you know how great a movie that is. If you haven't seen it, please watch it. It's, it's so encouraging. You will, you'll cry, you'll laugh, you'll be moved in your faith. It's a great movie. Kelsey Grammer, you know, Frazier, for those of you who remember his show, uh, he plays Chuck Smith and he plays him perfectly. I knew Chuck briefly. And Kelsey Grammer just captures the essence of Chuck Smith. It's such a great, uh, great acting, great movie. But, but so he's talking about his own faith. A lot of people didn't realize that Kelsey Grammer was a believer. This is what he said. The idea that you love your enemy as yourself 
There's only one guy that ever preached it, and that's Jesus. There's only one guy still saying it today, that's still Jesus. It's amazing. We're surrounded by contrary information, and the only one single, still clarion call is from Jesus Christ saying, this is the way, this is the path. And Kelsey Grammer says, it's the best thing yet. And he is so spot on. While everyone else says, stand for yourself, fight for yourself, and cut off anyone who is not with you in the battle, Jesus says, love your enemies Love your enemies and those who persecute you. Can you be that gracious? Can you be as gracious as David saying he's one of the good ones about a man who tried to run down his life? Can can you be that gracious with someone who's run you down? Someone who's hurt you? Can you be as gracious as Jonathan who stood by a soulish father? Can we be as gracious as Jesus Christ? Hey, this is part of the sacrifice. What we give up is the right to not be gracious. We give that up because Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. The forgiveness of Jesus, that's our standard. Verse 24, O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Those those aren't questions. Who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet? No, it's not a question. It's a statement. Who clothed you is in the masculine form, meaning Saul clothed you luxuriously in scarlet and put ornaments of gold on your apparel. And apparel is in the feminine form, So number seven in the list is a thankful honor, a thankful honor. You might feel like David's really reaching to try and find some reason to honor Saul. Okay, I gotta say something good about Saul. What do I say? Well, daughters of Israel, weep over him. He clothed you luxuriously in scarlet and he gave you gold ornaments. He gave you earrings and stuff. Well, we can say that. No, no, listen. David is able to recognize even for his own strained relationship with King Saul, that many people were blessed under that 40 year of his rule. Saul as king of Israel actually did a lot of good things in spite of his soul man, in spite of himself. He actually blessed Israel, grew Israel, strengthened Israel. He fought many battles that aren't even accounted in the scriptures that were victorious. We have a couple of verses that indicate that. Saul did good for Israel. And here talking about the daughters of Israel, they're they're representative of people who were blessed by Saul. Now, Now think about this in your own life. It is really hard to remain disgusted or angry with someone that you honor with thankfulness. Oh Lord, thank you for this person. I want you to think about, just for a moment, let's do a little exercise here. Think about someone who you really think has wronged you, someone who would be in the jerk class of people you know, someone who you have no regard for and don't want to talk about or even think about anymore. Let's think about that person. Go ahead, bring them to mind. I'll know, your faces will start going. (laughs) And you think about that person and can you recognize for a moment that someone is blessed by them? No. Yeah. Can you recognize that though they may have treated you poorly, they, and I'm talking about even within the church, they have blessed other people? They've done wonderful things for other people. Maybe it's not you, but certainly for others. 
Thank you, Lord, for what they are doing in the lives of other people. Can you honor them like that? That's what David's doing here with Saul. It's what Paul does when he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, to the church at Corinth that he started. He was there in Corinth. This was precious to him. It was important to him. And the church was completely out of order. I mean, they are, they are in division and, and they're in spiritual chaos. And Paul writes to them and says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Oh, Corinthian brothers and sisters, I, I thank God for you. When we're thankful and we honor those, even if they aren't deserving of honor because of our relationship, Man, thanksgiving increases honor and respect and love, and that is good practical grief. <laughs> if someone's given you grief, the way you make it good is you thank God for them and you honor them anyway. By the way, this is a lament for soldiers to dwell on. I don't know if you picked that up. In having the sons of Judah memorize this lament and be able to sing it, it's a soldier's song. It was written in some way to help soldiers who would go through some of the grief that David is now going through over the loss of Saul and Jonathan and the men of Israel. That soldiers in the future, they're gonna face this. They're gonna have this kind of grief. It is for them to go through it. And more than anything else, this lament comes back to, eighth and final point, a thorough love. David ends on that concept of a thorough love, verse 25, how have the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? Jonathan, Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. A thorough love. Matthew Henry said, he had reason to say Jonathan's love for him was wonderful. Surely never was the like for a man to love the one he knew was, to, was going to take the crown from his own head and to remain so faithful as Jonathan did. See, Saul may have kept the daughters of Israel in fine fashion, but Jonathan's love surpassed that of any women. And let's be absolutely clear. That's not a sexual love. This is a beautiful love. It is not a love of sexuality. It is a love of fidelity. It is a love of faithfulness. These two men were thoroughly knit together in spirit, in, in respect, in valor, in faithfulness, in covenantal love. These two were bound thoroughly and any view of the relationship of Jonathan and David as sexual is sick, depraved, and foolish. This is a beautiful, godly love. Any other view, it, it demeans the wonderful that is here. Your love to me was more wonderful he says, this wonderful love is deeper than physical satisfaction. It's way beyond that. Remember what I talked about before, the, the twisting of the bow and how the enemy would twist that which is right and good and perfect? That is a brother loving a brother, a sister loving a sister. Godly, righteous love and affection and commitment that we have for one another that has nothing to do with physical pleasure. 
but everything to do with loyalty and commitment and valor. Remember, Jonathan said in 1 Samuel 23, 17, you will be king over Israel and I will be next to you. I'm gonna stand next to you, David. Well, of course he didn't. He wouldn't. He wouldn't live to be David's second man, but he loved David with that kind of friendship that said, I'm gonna bear you up. I'm gonna stand beside you. I'm gonna support you, David. I'm your man. And David, David so thoroughly loved Jonathan because Jonathan had so thoroughly loved David. Can you say that about Jesus? We love because he first loved us. That's what spurs, develops, and, and grows our love. And so at the end of, of the lament, we literally come to the apex <coughs> of the lament, the apex of David's sorrow. And, <coughs> excuse me, It is a deeply personal moment. That's what's so interesting to me about the ending here. This thorough love is so personal. This is David and Jonathan. This is David's heart speaking of his dearest friend. And you almost, reading these verses, you almost kind of want to, I'll do the rest of the lament. I'll sing the rest of the song. But when I get here, I kind of want to tiptoe around it because this is between David and Jonathan. This is so personal. This is so important. But it's here. And David says, sons of Judah, sing this. Why? Because, because don't you know this? Don't you know this? That the more we love, the more we grieve the loss. Don't you understand? David says, sorrow is hardest where love is deepest. Greater the love, greater the grief. That's the deal. But it's a good grief where love is concerned. I want you to hear this in context. The greater the love, the greater the grief or the sorrow. Just listen to this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we openly, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Greater love, greater grief. No wonder Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Nobody loved more than him. Nobody loves you more than Jesus loves you. And nobody knows a more profound grief than Jesus Christ because of his profound love for you and for me. It's a good grief, a deep personal grief that Jesus has for his beloved and for the lost. That, my friends, is, is good grief. Verse 27, David finishes, how have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? And the weapons of war will perish. That day is coming when the, the plows 
the, and, and, the, and the pruning hooks, the, the swords are gonna be made into hooks for pruning and, and, and plows and the fruitfulness of the earth and the war will be over and the fighting will cease and the weapons will be laid waste. The song of the bow is for soldiers in their battles to remember the loss, release the grief, and restore hope. Father, restore our hope. We thank you for this song of David. We pray we will truly take these things to heart. And we thank you, Lord, that you write these things down. Lord, what I take out of this, I think more than anything else, is I remember your grief. I remember, Jesus, your sorrow. Not simply at the loss of your life on the cross, but at the loss of humans who won't accept that sacrifice. Lord, the idea that you grieve for those who hate you, that you sorrow over those who have rejected you is difficult. It's a difficult concept to grasp. But it's the love that you've called us to. So I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters that you will reignite our love for lost people. That you will strengthen our deep devotion to family and friends who have yet to know you. That we would not be afraid of grieving those who right now are in a lost state. To the point, Father, where that grief will motivate us to keep speaking the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray if there's anyone among us who today is not counted as one of yours, someone who hasn't chosen you, that that choice would be made today. If that's you this morning, would you pray with me? If you wanna receive Jesus right now as Lord and Savior, maybe you're a believer, maybe you followed him a long time, but you just, you need that reassurance in this moment that I belong to him and that he really does have me. Why don't you pray with us as well in your heart to the Lord. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I need your salvation. I am of weak flesh. I need the spiritual strength to lead me into eternity. Lord, I'm hopeless without you. I need that hope. And so this morning, Lord Jesus, I declare that you are the Christ. You came as God in the flesh. You went to that cross of shame and you died taking my sin on your, on your shoulders, taking it on my behalf. And you rose from the dead on the third day. And I know, Lord Jesus, that you are here today. I'm just coming to you. And I'm saying, forgive me, restore me, and be the king of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.